This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historians Dr Heather Sheard and Dr Ruth Lee. They both joined me in the studio to talk about their new book, Women to the Front, The Extraordinary Women Doctors of the Great War. I'm so pleased to have with me in the studio two wonderful women. They are historians Heather Sheard and Ruth Lee, and they're both here in the studio with me to talk about a great book that they have co-authored, and it's called Women to the Front, The Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War. And uh, the book is so detailed and um, it's drawing on some very important primary documents that have not really been available to many people. So that's very exciting. And we're talking about women who perhaps uh, haven't been known or recognised, particularly when we think about uh, days such as Anzac Day or Remembrance Day. So I'm very excited that we do get to um, explore these great women with Heather and Ruth. And I welcome them now. Hi there. Hi to Ruth. Hello, Amy. Hi, and Heather. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Thank you both for taking the time to come in and sharing your great knowledge of these great women. First of all, just to to get the obvious out of the way, but it is quite, I am quite intrigued as to how it all happened. How did you encounter some of these women that you've focused your attention on? And I know that um, there are a couple of key women that you've really uh, researched and looked into as part of your PhDs and and theses? My um, PhD thesis was about Dr Vera Scantleby-Brown and uh, who uh, I hate to admit now but I have actually never heard of until I started researching um, Victoria's uh, maternal and child health system and I found her and then quickly found that she had um, actually been to the Great War and served for nearly two years as a surgeon at the Endless Street Military Hospital. And um, as I researched her particular life and her contribution over the whole of her life, I kept coming across mentions of other women doctors who also had served, which really um, stirred my interest and I kept putting aside all these little bits of information. When I finished my PhD, I thought this was the time now to really research these women, um, to hopefully write something that would honour the work that they had done and to gain some sort of wider recognition for them as well. So that's how I began. And it was quite similar for me too, Amy. Well, I stumbled upon this wonderful collection of family papers from the Degaris family and Dr Mary Degaris, I had seen she'd been a bit of a footnote in Histories of Geelong because she worked there after the war for 40 years. Um, But similar to Heather, um, looking at what she did in her life and particularly being fascinated by this thought of this person getting on a ship, sailing over to London um, to join the First World War war effort. And she'd actually tried to enlist, but was rejected by the army. And I think this is quite crucial to our whole endeavour was, I mean, I didn't know that there weren't women doctors in World War I overseas, but there weren't. Only nurses could enlist. So these women and we've ended up finding 26 so far, um, all travelled independently despite being rejected by the British and Australian armies and joined voluntary organisations, in usually in London, and then set off 
to both the Eastern and Western fronts. It is phenomenal to think that that is the case, that these women, despite being getting this pushback and a brush off, decided, no, I'm so you know passionate, I want to go and do this, and made that trip, which was a pretty substantial trip in you know 1914 or 1915 depending mm. on when they went across um, but also that women were only just really being part of the medical profession and even then not quite accepted in Australia in the mainstream and uh, were often I believe relegated to um, focusing on women's health which of course is not you know a, a bad thing and children's health but you know they weren't necessarily accepted as part of the broader um, those other specializations and areas that uh, that men tended towards. Mm. Yes, um, at that particular time, it it was. Uh, it's certainly true, Amy, that um, women were not accepted right into the medical profession at all. Um, and apart from uh, you say they were relegated to uh, to women's health, even so, they were still not able to gain hospital positions, even in in the women's hospitals. Um, so they really. Gaining a position in a hospital was really the start um, to actually developing a career overall in medicine and they couldn't access um, those particular positions. So, yeah, it was very difficult for them at that time. Mm. And let's just put into context uh, when women in Australia were able to graduate with a degree in medicine because that was still a fairly recent phenomenon, wasn't it? Yes, it was 1881 where the, um, I'm sorry, 1891, the first three women graduated, um, uh, two in Melbourne, uh, Clara Stone and Margaret White, they um, graduated in 1891 and um, Dr Laura Fowler at the University of Adelaide also in 1891. So by the time the war broke out they had been graduating for 23 years and there were around 130 uh, Australian women registered as medical practitioners by, by 1914. Mm. And in terms of the world context and Australia's place, were there other countries that were doing better or were they doing worse in terms of women's ability to actually attend university and pursue a career as a doctor? So obviously nursing would have been a, a far more accepted profession for women That's at right. the time. Um, in London, there was the London... Was it the London, London School of Medicine for Women? School of, thank you, Heather. <laughs> um, and some of the Australian women earlier had travelled over to both Edinburgh and London to qualify as doctors. Um, yeah, in the eighteen in the eighteen eighties. So, yeah, they they were well aware. They were they were operating in an international context and were made a lot of friendships with medical women, particularly in the UK. Mm. Um, initially, we really, Australia really lagged behind in terms of uh, women's access to medical degrees. So Dr Constance Stone, who is very much responsible for the um, creation of the Queen Victoria Hospital in, in Melbourne, she had to go to America um, to get her degree. So women could gain access to medical schools in America, um, in Switzerland, 
um, in Belgium and also um, in, in London and in Scotland and also in Ireland at the University of Dublin. So it did take us a while. However, when women were admitted in Australia, they were admitted to the medical degrees in the faculties and not put into separate um, medical schools as they were in London and Scotland. Mm. And I wonder in terms of specialisation, that might be another um, issue for women because as we know, even in the current day, uh, there's still a great divide between uh, people who, particularly women, who are specialising as physicians because of the kind of life demands that are made on a physician as opposed to a surgeon. And so we see surgery still dominated by men today, particularly at the higher end of consultants and heads of departments. In terms of these women, the 26 women that you've researched who, who went across, what kind of specialisations and skills and like areas of focus did they have? Well, the war actually presented an incredible opportunity in surgery for the women mm. to gain experience. And a number of them made that very clear that, you know, this was something not to miss, that if they were active on the war front, they'd be gaining incredible experience that they couldn't get elsewhere. So I'm not sure, Heather, you could help here. Um, Specialty training really didn't seem to be an option prior to World War II mm. for yeah. most of those women. Yeah, specialisation in medicine generally, both male and female, was pretty well non-existent um, before the First World War. So you'd find that uh, every doctor just about, um, people we would today call general practitioners, actually re- that was a term that, that wasn't used at that time and they actually wrote down that they were surgeons. Mm. Um, but as, uh, as we said before, women couldn't gain access to surgical positions in hospitals. It really was thought that if you put a woman into surgery um, or into trauma and, and accident areas that they would probably become hysterical, being women. And, um, and also, of course, there was an enormous taboo against women doctors um, treating men, men patients, and that was one of the reasons that they were so opposed to enlisting women as, as doctors that they would primarily have men as their patients and that was um, that horrified uh, officialdom at the time. Yeah. Mm. It's really funny to think that given that so many of the people who were, I guess, day-to-day hands-on caring for the men were women uh, in the form of nurses <laughs> and, you know, um, some, some kind of cultural phenomenons like TV shows such as Anzac Girls has shown some of those women who were nurses on the front lines um, near Gallipoli and elsewhere and there were also interestingly a couple of cases where they showed women learning to do anaesthesia for example which of course is, was very early um, still developing and, and of course medicine at that time presumably still had a lot of development to go to get to the point of even World War II um, mm. and the medicine that we had then but I am interested in um, some of the individuals that you've been discussing and uh, Heather you mentioned Dr Vera Scantlebury Brown, which is a fantastic name, <laughs> um, and I recall, and you said that she worked at a, a London military hospital. Um, is this the hospital that was run in t- 
entirely by women? <laughs> it was. Um, really the way that these Australian women doctors were able to access positions since they couldn't do so officially um, was by, um, in, by joining the hospitals that were created by the suffrage um, um, movement in, in England. And um, there's two major ones that we talk about in the book. Um, one being the Scottish Women's Hospital, and, and Ruth will probably talk about that in a little while. But the other was the Women's Hospital Corps, which was created by Dr Louisa Garrett-Anderson, who was the daughter of the first registered um, woman doctor in England, Dr Elizabeth Garrett-Anderson, and Scotswoman Dr Flora Murray. And uh, they created the Endell Street Military Hospital in a workhouse. They were given a workhouse in Covent Garden in London, a five-storey workhouse that is is supposedly the one that um, Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist is, is based on. And uh, they created a 560-bed hospital in that old workhouse. And if you want a comparison, the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Alfred Hospital today have about 360 patients. So this was an enormous hospital. They did have a little wing for the WAC, the Women's the Women's um, Army Corps but most of them by far 99% of their patients were men mm. and they worked from uh, for four years from 1915 to 1919 treating over 26,000 wounded soldiers in that time and all of the specialists all of the doctors um, all of the orderlies all of the nurses um, 180 staff were all women. There were there was initially a small um, corps of army men, but as demand for for men in the services increased, um, it ended up four, and then eventually one. <laughs> and so the women did everything, everything that you can imagine to run a 560 bed hospital was done by the women. Yes, and five Australian women doctors served at that hospital during the war. It's phenomenal, really, that they've achieved that at all let alone at that time which is just amazing yeah it it really came about because when the war began they formed their own hospital corps and raced over to paris and they were given i don't know if you've been to paris but yes. they were given the newly built um, Claridge's Hotel on the Champs-Élysées. Champs oh, wow. Yes, it was about to open and it was commandeered by the French government and they were given that. And they did... Initially, they, they um, experienced quite a lot of... Um, a little bit of hostility and surprise uh, that they were actually running this hospital. But they did such a brilliant job that um, the Chief of Medical Services back in London, um, Keogh, he actually was game enough, if you like, at the time to ask them to come back and establish this hospital at Indle Street. So that's how mm. it, it came about. Yeah, It's really, yeah, interesting that you say, you know, the British War Office initially had that, you know, absolutely, no, not at all, mm. couldn't even... In think of countenance the idea of women doctors mm. being part of the official um, enlisted military doctors. Mm. Uh, I'm really interested also in the fact that I believe um, Vera did keep records of her time there and that you've been able to utilise and you both have utilised obviously a range of sources as mm. historians do but what 
did you find when you were reading through Vera's letters home was her state of mind and her experience and was she um, excited by the types of challenges surgical challenges that she uh, countenanced or did she actually you know find it quite overwhelming she did Um, I think in the first six months she really uh, doubted herself enormously she wrote that military surgery was horrible um, and that she just thought that she didn't have the capabilities to do it. That's what she wrote home to her family. And I think that she nearly went under mentally in that in that first six months. But the people that she worked for, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett-Anderson, were very, perhaps ahead of their time in realising the shock and the trauma that this kind of work did. And Vera was only 27 years old at the time. Um, and so they, they were very supportive in... Uh, in getting her, getting any new staff to do things like anaesthetics for a long while, to giving them only responsibility for only one ward, and gradually you can see in her writing a change to um, to more and more confidence. And what she did was to go to the London School um, of Medicine for Women and practice anatomy in their um, in their dissection room, so that she could um, gain more. Um, initially, she was just using her anatomy textbook that she'd taken with her. From, from Melbourne University but she knew that she needed more than that and um, gradually she gained confidence until in the end you can see in her letters little lists of things oh today I did uh, you know two secondary amputations uh, operation on a nerve a fracture and you can see that she did gain considerable mm. confidence. Yeah, it makes me think that you know, these types of injuries that were occurring in World War One, which was the first total war that we saw, you know, there's a whole range of new injuries, or very severe injuries, as you say, amputations and shrapnel wounds, and you know, you would need to retrieve pieces of shrapnel and know and understand the vascular system and where the arteries are you know obviously these you know are new challenges to any doctor really in terms of the scale and also probably the severity of the disability and we haven't even looked at uh, obviously the mental trauma that a lot of soldiers came back with and shell shock for example um Let's talk also about uh, Mary DeGarris, who's mm. a really fascinating character herself. And I love that she had a connection to Geelong, which is <laughs> so nice. And I believe yes. that she's had a little bit of recognition in the last couple of years um, through government funding for different things like a film about her life, a short movie. And Yes. Yeah. We made um, a short video on her life for the Her Place Women's Museum, which was launched just last week mm. which has now got new a new building well a very old building um in east melbourne yes yeah it's wonderful um well look mary was 10 years older than vera and she part of her motivation for going to war was to be there because her fiance um who she'd met in outback tibberborough um he he had enlisted and gone with Mary's first cousin, both of them, Colin and Ralph, um, in 1915. She spent a very anxious time waiting and then just decided in early 1916 she had to go back to London to be there in case he was wounded and repatriated back, which most of the wounded were. So she worked at the Manor War Hospital in Epsom and there are a lot of his letters and her letters in the papers 
in the family papers, but then everything ground to a halt. And um, I found only about three letters through the war years in the family papers at home. Um, so Colin, unfortunately, was killed in the Battle of Pozier in um, early August 1916. Mary didn't hear for six weeks as to what happened because his letters had mm. just stopped. And then she was totally bereft and grief-stricken and there are some very moving letters that she wrote back to her, particularly her twin sister, Bessie, at home. Um, after that, it seems she gathered herself together in December of that year and joined the Scottish Women's Hospitals, which had been set up by Scottish women doctor Elsie Inglis, who mobilised all the suffrage societies um, in the UK to fund all female um, medical units, which they offered to the British Army, who told them to go home and sit still. <laughs> um, so they offered themselves to the Allied armies, France, Russia, um, Serbia, who who all grabbed the offer mm. because so many male doctors had been killed in the war particularly by 1917. There was a dire shortage. So Mary um, and another Australian woman, Dr Agnes Bennett, who was again 10 years older than Mary, um, Agnes set up the what was called the America Unit in northern Macedonia, working auspice by the French Red Cross and answerable to the Serbian army. So they sent up a 200-bed tent hospital by a lake just over the mountains from the shifting battlefront, the Germans and Bulgarians um, and the Austrians coming down through Serbia, fighting mm. the Serbian army. Um, so Mary worked under Agnes for a year and then she was taken very ill with malaria, so Agnes left and Mary was appointed the chief medical officer there. So that was it's 200 amazing. beds in that hospital. Um, yes, fully staffed by women. They did have some Serbian male helpers. But, yes, everything from running a fleet of Ford ambulances, repairing the vehicles, digging the latrines, planting the veggie gardens, attending them. Um, Mary had to administer the lot with of course, the nurses, the cooks, the orderlies, etc. Mm. So where I found a lot of correspondence were in the archives of the Scottish Women's Hospitals. And Mary was always a prolific writer, so it was very odd that there wasn't much here yeah. in any papers. But there were boxes of Mary's correspondence. She sat in her tent every night, typing away copious, like, emails, really. Mm -hmm sending them back to the Scottish Women's Headquarters for, you know, ordering supplies and all of that sort of thing. And are so. they held in Scotland? Yes. Yes, wow. I do have copies. Yeah, that's great. It's <laughs> amazing. Yes. Um, and how did these women fundraise or manage to fund these hospitals? Because if they're not getting support from the war office, how did they actually establish oh, them? This is a wonderful story. They had a... They employed women as professional fundraisers. So that 
So returning women doctors and nurses would give public lectures all around London. They had a lot of connections into British high society. A lot of wealthy women wanted to help the war effort. Um, but they also they sent them round the empire. They sent them to America, to Australia, to India. And there was a wonderful letter where... Um, the fundraiser was writing back and said that the um, Queenslanders were wonderfully friendly <laughs> and generous, but the Victorians weren't nearly as good. <laughs> so oh that was quite a laugh. <laughs> but yes. The so, competition there mm. existed that early. <laughs> and very wealthy philanthropic women in America funded mm. the fleet of Ford ambulances, for example, in um, Ostrovo was where they were. So they were very well equipped. It was yeah. quite astonishing. Mm. And what kinds of battlefields, given their situation, their actual location over there, what kind of battlefields and soldiers were they treating? Um, all nationalities. So not just allied prisoners. I mean, not prisoners. Soldiers. Allied, allied soldiers. Mm. Um, but enemy soldiers too. Whoever was wounded seemed to be... And there were a wide range um, of soldiers from all over Europe and some from other colonial areas. So quite multicultural. Mm. Mm. I, did she ever comment around whether there was that tension there, given that there's not only the Allies but the, the enemy within the hospital? Well, certainly the majority were Allies mm. and Serbians wounded. Um, no, look, I didn't find anything there. Um, uh, look, there were there were disagreements sometimes amongst staff. There were ongoing tensions. Perhaps the, both Agnes and Mary were very proper and very on guard and wanting to guard the unit's reputation. So if some of the nurses or orderlies were getting a bit out of hand, wandering off after dark or whatever, they were brought into line. Definitely mm. it was run along military lines because they were... Well, the whole hospital system traditionally was run on a military model. Yeah. So, um, you know, people had to toe the line, but they also had a lot of fun. <laughs> there were male soldiers' camps around their camp. There was a lot of interaction... Um, trips down to Salonika, which was a very um, exotic city at that point, where a lot of the Australian nurses were stationed. There were over nearly 3,000 nurses mm. down at Salonika. So a lot of interaction happening. Yeah. Mm. I'm speaking with Heather Sheard and Ruth Lee and they've co-authored a book, Women to the Front, The Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War. Um, I'd really like to also touch on and understand uh, the, the women that you've looked at in particular detail. In terms of the, the the length of World War One, which was obviously 1914 to you know 1919 thereabouts, and obviously there was much more still to be done after the war. You know, people didn't stop being unwell, um, although obviously the battles had ceased. 
what did the women do? Did they like? Did most of them kind of remain in engaged as a doctor in these hospitals throughout the time of the war, or did they serve for periods? Because I imagine that it was a very demanding job, um, and I, I just wanted to understand the kind of you know commitment and strain that that t- might have had on them. Both of those things that you've mentioned, some um, some served for a short period of time. Lil, um, another doctor we haven't mentioned is Queenslander Dr Lillian Cooper, who served for 12 months at the um, at the America Unit Hospital in Ostrovo, and uh, she had spent quite a lot of time at their forward dressing station, which was up on the mountain, and uh, and came down with pneumonia. And she was an older doctor as well, and so after 12 months, her health really. Um, was not strong enough to stand any more war service and, and she went home. Some some doctors, like Dr Grace Cordingly, spent the entire, um, almost the entire war um, undertaking pathology tests at um, the King George Hospital in, in London. Um, sorry, the Royal Herbert Hospital in London. Um, Vera, for example, spent two years, as did Mary Degaris. So it really covered the whole range of, of shorter-term... Um, um, con- oh, not contracts, but shorter term commitment, if you like, to quite long ones. Mm. In 1917, the RAMC <clears throat> finally um, asked for women to um, come forward because they were so short of doctors at the time at the Battle of the Somme. Um, and but basically those women were hired on contract and a lot of them went to the island, the hospital island of Malta um, and they served for a period of 12 months. So that was exa- on contract and although they were employed by the RAMC they were still not permitted to wear any ba- badges of rank. They were given a rank mm-hmm. so that they'd know how much to pay them but they were not permitted to demonstrate that rank in the form of any any badges or, or arm patches and neither did they receive any of the privileges that that um, other that the male officers received, like taxation and travel, uniforms, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, in terms of these these women, we've talked about you know the London Military Hospital. We've talked about um, the the hospital the tent hospitals that were set up over in uh, Eastern Europe. Were there other um, hospitals that were situated on, say, the Western Front, those kind of areas where the battles were very severe and that are kind of obviously spoken of quite often? Yes, the um, the Scottish Women's Hospital set up their only um, fixed or permanent hospital, if you like, in an abbey, uh, the Abbey de Roermont, which was, it's about 40, still there, it's about 40 kilometres north of Paris. And they they could hear the guns. They were within uh, about 20 kilometres from the front line at that time. And like the, um, like the hospital in Ostrovo, they set up a forward dressing station so they could get the, get the wounded soldiers sooner. And that was in a little village called Villers-Cotteret, which was even closer to the front line and in the end had to be abandoned and was mm. bombed by the German army. So, yes, that, that was another example of a, a permanent hospital and they, they served there throughout the war for four years. Wow. Just finally, because um, I know we have to finish up, in terms of when the women came home and what they did or how they were treated, um, given that they were not recognised officially as uh, part of the war effort and enlisted um, as such as doctors in the military... What was life like for them after? 
Unfortunately, it uh, was um, the same as when they left. There was very little change here um, in terms of social acceptance and professional acceptance for the women. So when they got home, again, it was extremely difficult for them to, to gain hospital positions. And they had none of the, the... Not that they were great, the benefits for the men, but they had none of the benefits um, that the men received. Uh, quite a few men could stay on their army pay and study over in England, but because they weren't officially enlisted, none of those benefits were accrued and and it begs the question of whether they wanted to be surgeons but none of the women um, ended up in surgery after the war. Mm. It's uh, it's sad to see that that did happen but it's also really great that you have highlighted their wonderful stories in this book and people can actually head along to the book launch tonight <laughs> in Melbourne. It's uh, today at 6pm at the Melbourne Welsh Church mm-hmm. um, which I believe is on Latrobe Street. It is, 320. Excellent and um, do people need to register or can they just head along? No, they don't. We'd be delighted to see them, wouldn't we, Ruth? Yes, we would. That would be <laughs> wonderful. Welcome. Oh, good. Well, I hope people can attend and I'll put the details up on our social media. And thank, thank you. you both so much for coming in and being so generous with your time and thoughts. Thanks, Amy, for the thank opportunity. You. Thank you, Amy. Wonderful. I've been speaking with two historians, Dr Heather Sheard and Dr Ruth Lee, and they're co-authors of the book Women to the Front, uh, the Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War, which is out through Penguin Australia.